My name is Brett, and I am pastor of this people. It's good to see all of you, especially those who are with us online. Welcome. Glad to have you. And for those who are here in the building, I'm not. <laughs> well, we live in a strange world. Um, I happen to have been around somebody who tested positive for the coronavirus, and uh, uh, and speaking with people who helped to govern this church and watch over my life, I thought it best, and they did too, to exercise the greatest amount of caution and not to be with you all who happen to be in the sanctuary today. So I'm recording this message. It makes no difference to those of you who are online, but to everybody who is in the, in the building, that's what happened. And um, I'm very very regretful that I can't be with you today. Um, before we, we begin the message, I am going to pray and ask God for help for our nation uh, with all of the things that are going on. And boy, we've got a cascade, do we not? COVID-19, the ethnic tensions in our world, the economic crises, an election coming up that is extremely contentious. Um, we're really good at messing stuff up as human beings. And generally speaking, even our solutions cause us more problems. So I'm asking God to help us to do stuff we can't do, to bring us to our knees and allow the world's eyes to open so that they can understand the goodness of our God. And when I say bring us to our knees, I'm talking about the church to our knees and repent for whatever we have done wrong. Get more right, love him more, be, be better to the world. And then asking that he open the eyes of the world that they might see his goodness and grace. Because that, as far as I can see, is the only way out of this. It's the only way. And when God brings circumstances to mankind that man cannot fix on his own. It is a cue for the church to partner with God in unique ways because we are the only people on the planet that can help the world when they can't help themselves. We're the only ones, the only ones. We are his reps. And if we don't exercise the unique responsibilities he has given us that are supernatural in their orientation, whether it be preaching this gospel with power anointed by the Holy Spirit as a result of him engulfing us and baptizing us in his presence or praying to our God, talking to him with relevance, bringing his will down to make it palatable and relevant to people on the planet, uh, beginning to, 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 to see the dead raised and, and, and blind eyes open. If we don't use all, all the tools in the tool belt that God has given us scripturally, then we're not going to see the results that we need to see in the world repaired as it needs to be repaired. So I am asking God, help us. Father, please do something. Do something beyond that which we can do. Help us to partner with you Pray your will into the earth. And to be, to be the kind of 
witnesses and lights we ought to be to the world. We don't blame the world for the world's problems. We're not doing that. We're not mad at anybody. We don't put our political persuasions in front, in front of our responsibility as believers. We realize that our battle is not against flesh and blood, but against principalities and powers. And so we submit ourselves to you as a church. And we say, have your way with us and do something special for and in this world. In Jesus' name, amen. Thank you for agreeing with me in prayer. Turn with me over to Matthew 25. Matthew 25. <clears throat> and we're going to look at a large portion of Scripture there. Um, verses 1 through 13. Matthew 25, verses 1 through 13. The title of the message is Preparing Christ's Arrival. Preparing Christ's Arrival. Jesus is speaking. And he says, Then the kingdom of heaven will be com com comparable to ten virgins who took their lamps and went out to meet the bridegroom. Five of them were foolish and five were prudent. Verse 3. For when the foolish took their lamps, they took no oil with them. But the prudent took oil in flasks along with their lamps. Now, while the bridegroom was delaying, they all got drowsy and began to sleep. Verse 6. But at midnight, there was a shout. Behold the bridegroom, come out to meet him. Then all those virgin, virgins arose and trimmed their lamps. The foolish said to the prudent, give us some of your oil. For our lamps are going out, verse 9. But the prudent answered, No, there will not be enough for us and you too. Go instead to the, uh, to the dealers and buy some for, your, for, for yourselves, verse 10. And while they were going away to make the purchase, the bridegroom came. And those who were ready went in to, to, with him to the wedding feast. And the door was shut. Verse 11, later the other virgins also came, saying, Lord, open up for us. But he answered, truly I say to you, I don't know you. Verse 13, be on the alert, for you do not know the day or the hour. Lord, help us as we study your word, please. This passage um, is a parable spoken by Christ during the last few days, weeks of his life. Uh, and he is trying to give the disciples a picture of what it's like for him to return. Now, the, the concept of returning is one that needs some real definition. The disciples, first of all, didn't want him to go. They did not want him to leave. But that he was always talking about coming back and giving parables about a master's long journey and then his return. If he, if he was going to go, at least he was coming back. But they didn't know when. They had no idea what it would look like upon his return. And they didn't know why he was leaving. They have, had every reason to believe he was coming back bodily. They would not have thought that somehow he was coming back spiritually or metaphorically but that he was actually going to re 
return and set up a kingdom that was natural in its orientation and deal with all of the ungodly realms, the kings, monarchs, who were opposing kingdom principles. But I don't know that Jesus was trying to convey the same thing that the disciples inferred. I don't think he was implying that he was coming back to, uh, the day after he rose from the dead or, or when he went to uh, glory. It, 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 the time frame of his bodily return was set, but I don't think because he obviously did not come back bodily after he arose. Uh, you know, there was 40 days. He rose from the dead and then there were 40 days of his uh, spending with the disciples, teaching them about the Old Testament and, and what it meant for them to interpret the scriptures in the context of his crucifixion and resurrection and his ministry life. And then after the 40 days, he was taken up into heaven. Um, and the disciples, as he was taken up there on, on the Mount of Bethany, they, they were looking and he kept going and they kept looking, wondering what's happening. Uh, they, didn't, they didn't know that he was going to be taken up for good. I mean, he'd been there with them 40 days after the resurrection. They thought that he was just training them so that they might be his, his, his uh, you know, chief counsel or his, 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 on his staff in, in the, the, what would you call it, the king's court. And so they didn't realize that after the 40 days he was out and they were in and they were supposed to now continue on with the kingdom. And so they were looking up and the angels, they looked up so long, the angels came and said, why are you still staring up at the sky? Get about the business that he told you to do. Go out and preach his gospel to all the nations. He will return just as he left. But they didn't say when. And so I'm not, I'm not quite sure that Jesus was trying to imply that this passage here necessarily only refers to his bodily return. Because there are other passages talking about what it looks like when the master went away, like the, the parable of the talents, that although it does refer to his bodily return and that we're going to give an account for all the things he has given us, we must be good stewards of the resources that he has, has, has distributed to us. But the parable of the talents is not just about his bodily return. It's about what are we doing with the stuff he's given us now, and we've got to give an account on a regular basis uh, uh, with respect to how this gospel is going in our life. Meaning he told one, I'm giving you five talents. Go work with it until I return. He gave one, two. He gave another one. The one who had five gained five more. The one who had two gained two more. The one who had one went out and buried it. The master came back, the one who had five. He said, come, let's settle accounts. The one who had five obviously had 10. The master said, well done. Come into the joy of your master. This was amazing. You, you served me well. The one who had two, Gain two more. Well done. Both of them. Well done. It doesn't matter how much you bring back. It simply matters what you do with what you've got. Meaning the one who had five was given five because he was able to do more with what God gave him. The one who had two wasn't able to do as much as the one who had five and so God gave him according to his ability. Paul, wow, big. Nobody like Paul. Five man. Me? One and a half. <laughs> but I'm working it. I'm trying to give him three. I'm trying to double it. The guy who had two doubled it. And the father said this, a master if you will. Well done. Same commendation. If you are more talented, you don't get any better. 
better commendation from God than somebody who's less talented that did what they should have done with what God gave them. And if you are less talented, you're not going to receive less of a commendation than the guy who's more talented. You just need to do what God told you to do. And if you do it, you're going to hear, well done. The guy who had one talent buried it. Not good. Well, sure enough, there's going to be an accounting whenever we meet the Lord or he meets us in his bodily return. But listen to me, the most important thing, Jesus is not talking about money here. Although it's a parable about resources, he is not talking about money, though this applies to your good stewardship of financial resources. What he is primarily talking about, because it is a parable about the things most important before he leaves the planet. He's trying to give the disciples understanding about what they ought to do. And the thing most important, the thing he was giving them, was this gospel. This message. The most important news for mankind. Do something with it. Oh, Paul, boy, when he got the gospel message, my goodness. He leveraged, leveraged it amazingly. And all of us have been given something. Sadly, most of the church is burying it. Most Christians bury it. They take the gospel message for themselves and they put it in their heart and they never replicate it. They never double it. They just use it for themselves and they stay saved and they go to glory. Hmm. <laughs> I want to hear well done. I want to take this gospel message and multiply it. In, this last, in these last few days of Christ's life, he's doing what he can to try to help people understand that there is an application to his coming to our life to give an account for the things that we are doing now, not just the ultimate account for when we see him, but things we're doing now. I want to hear well done tomorrow morning. I want to lay my head on the pillow and feel like I have pleased my God because I've done well with that which he has given me. And believe me, he comes to me on a regular basis so I can give an account. And he's coming to all of us on a regular basis. When he returns to your life next week, what is he going to find? When he comes to your life on Tuesday, what is he going to find? Here we have the parable of the bridegroom and the virgins. Now, this is, <clears throat> this is foreign to us in how we do weddings. We don't understand the context. And I've read as much as I possibly could on this topic, both in Jewish culture, biblical literature, extra-biblical literature. It doesn't mean it's bad. It just means it's, it's historical in its context, but it's not in the Bible to try to find out what Jesus was saying. Because obviously the disciples and anybody else who heard this knew exactly what he was talking about when he didn't explain everything he was talking about. But we don't. And so I massage this as best as I can. I don't have all the answers. But I think I have some that might help us. So let me give you the context of how a wedding was different then than it is now. Today, a wedding, you send out invitations about four to six months in advance so people can prepare. That's similar to what happened back then. But a wedding is a day for us. It's June 14th on a Saturday. It's 6 o'clock in the evening. 
and you come and the preacher is there and you got people before COVID in the sanctuary and you got folks that are saying I do's and you have a moment it lasts about 30 minutes you got people singing you got sand and different colors you got unity candles you got all these things and then you have a reception afterwards it lasts maybe two to three hours and then people go on home you plan to, to leave the house at 5.15, get to the wedding at 6, and probably not get back home till 9 or 10. Done. Not so with weddings in the Middle East, especially during this time. A wedding would last at least a week, at least a week, and they would send out invitations a year in advance so people could plan. Why? Number one, there were no modes of transportation that got you there in a couple hours or 15 minutes being down the street. You couldn't fly there. You couldn't drive there. You had to caravan there. And this wedding could be so important that you wanted all the people who were related to the family or either by friendship or by blood could come. And so you had, you had to send out invitations. And if it took them, say you had a wedding in Galilee, but there were people in Jerusalem that needed to come. That's 90 miles. For us, hour and a half by car. For them, three weeks by camel. Three weeks! So the last thing you're going to do is have a wedding. When somebody traveled three weeks, a wedding and a reception that lasts four hours. And then tell them bye. They're looking to party all week long. This is a vacation for them. This is a huge endeavor. They brought their whole family. They brought their servants with them. They've had to continue their business on the road. They got their accountants. It is a massive moment. And so a wedding would last at least a week, at least. And you see this in Cana. It lasted so long that they ran out of wine in John chapter 2. They ran out of wine. The reception ran out of food. That's, that's not a good thing. You don't want that kind of mud on your face if you're the host. But that's the, the distance. That's how it's different. Secondly, people didn't text and say, I'm running late. <laughs> They didn't call. So you didn't know when the most important guests were going to arrive. Could have been day one. Might be day six. Don't know. And so it's not, there's not a specific time when the ceremony goes on. It's just when everybody shows up. Thus, you're kind of saying, oh, did, are, are, is, is Aunt Judy here? Mm-mm. Oh, Okay. We have to wait till tomorrow then. What about Uncle Ralph? No. Antoine? No. What about, what about Grandpa Troy? He said he'd be here on Wednesday. Oh. Ah. And so you just don't know. You just don't know. And so you're waiting. It's an indetermined time when the wedding's going to begin. Undetermined? Either way, you know what I'm talking about. So we, we have this situation where Jesus is describing these virgins who are going to be attending the bridegroom. Now, we look at them as bridesmaids, but that's not what they were. We have bridesmaids that attend the bride in our culture. But there were ten virgins that were to respond to the, to the groom. <laughs> Now, why in the world do you have that? Well, people in that day might say, why do you have bridesmaids? What's the point? Does she need that many people to help her get dressed? I'm not saying we're doing bad. I'm just saying there's a different culture. And generally speaking, 
you had virgins that, that were there to accompany the bridegroom to the wedding, primarily, we think. Now, this is where it gets a little fuzzy. And I'm, I'm not making stuff up. I'm just interpreting what I know to be true about the culture. They had to be virgins. Because when the bridesmaids, excuse me, the, 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 the virgin attendants for the groom began to attend the groom's way, it spoke of his restraint. That he had all these beautiful women attending him, yet he touched not one. Because he so loved his bride. It amplified his character in front of everybody. And the more virgins he could have that were attending his way, the more his character was displayed to people thinking this is a good man, a good man. And the virgins felt comfortable around him knowing he was not going to violate them. They were glad to attend his way. Now you might think all of this is a little chauvinistic, a, 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 a little maybe even misogynistic. I'm, I'm not trying to give a judgment on whether they were right or wrong. I'm just trying to help you understand the culture that Jesus is explaining to describe how accountable we need to be on a regular basis to him. So these virgins would attend the, the groom and they would attend his way. Now they were waiting until the bridegroom would tell them it's time and he would have an attendant that would yell it out. Behold, the bridegroom. Now the weddings would usually, usually always happen at night. And there was a very, a very practical reason for that. Um, the most important thing about the wedding was the consummation. And I need to be delicate. I need to be real delicate. The most important thing about the wedding was the consummation. The man and the woman coming together. And generally you wanted that to be at night. And then the next morning they would meet with everybody again for the reception. And go on with the reception for days. You didn't want the bride and groom to get married at one in the afternoon and then wait all evening to consummate the relationship. So they would get married at night. Um, this meant that if the, the virgins were going to attend the bridegroom's way, that they had to have illumination. That they were the ones who had their flashlights for the groom to light his way so that he could meet up with another. I'm going someplace with this. The virgins had lamps filled with oil, lit, so that they could illumine the way of the bridegroom to his intended. And if they didn't have any oil, they couldn't light the way. And if they couldn't light the way, then they were disqualified from participating in his union with another. Now there's a lot in there. But let me start with this. There were five virgins, he said, were wise, Jesus did, and five were unwise. All of them had oil in their lamp, lamps, every one of them. But five of them had extra oil. And five only had the oil that was present in their lamps. The five who had extra oil realized this this whole thing, I mean, we're here. We came on day one. 
But this whole thing, it, it might take longer than we desire. I mean, it's, it's day five now and not all the guests are here. Not everybody who is supposed to be in the wedding, at, invited to the wedding uh, 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 ceremony and the reception is here yet. God is still waiting for people to join his house. There's a lot of people you wonder, why doesn't he come back? Where is he? He's still waiting for people to show up. And by the way, there were people before you showed up who said the same thing. Hurry up and come back. But God was patient. <laughs> so that Brett, so that Brett could get in. I was invited. But I took a long time to get there. So God waited. And he waited and he waited. Don't be mad at God for waiting. He loved you like that. He loves other people like that. And so the, the bridesmaids, who, it's, I'm in my culture. The virgins who had their lamps lit and oil in them and brought extra realized this might take longer. And let me tell you, you need to, you need to supply yourself with oil. This is taking longer than I want. <laughs> I thought we'd be done with coronavirus. I thought we'd be done. I thought we'd be done by, I don't know, May. And here we are approaching October. And I'm looking at, at maybe even Easter being still like this. It's taking longer than I thought. Everything seems to take longer than I think. So what am I going to do? I had oil yesterday. I had oil back in March. But I can't run out. I've got to continue to illumine Christ's way into the lives of others, into someone else's life. I've got to figure out how in the world I can get in my Bible and fellowship with the Holy Spirit to such a degree that the, 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 my flask is always full of extra. Not just for me and mine, but for you and everybody else in my community. I got a flask of oil ready because I know it's now probably going to take much longer for him to do the ultimate, to come back like I want him to, much longer than I desire. So I carry a flask here. You, 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 listen, we carry flasks all the time, don't we? We got water flasks, don't we? Water bottles, if not a flask. We're carrying around extra Stuff in order to make ourselves just, you know, hydrated and, and healthy. Where's your flask of oil? You're going to need much more than you think. Five were wise and five were foolish thinking, I'm good. I got saved. It's all great. Okay, hallelujah. But you got a bad attitude every day. Your Christian character is lacking. You're not pressing in to find out more about God. You're not serving more in the church. You're not helping the community. You're just hanging on for dear life, making sure you can get to heaven. Now, I know that's probably only one or two out of the 7,000 that call us home. I get it. I, and I, I'm just preaching to you one or two. The rest of you, you always have, you know, you're, you're, you're double-barreled, if you will. You got a flask here and a flask here, and you're just, whoo 
know you're always ready. You got enough, not only for today, but all next week. I'm glad for you. But the rest of those to whom I'm speaking or those who need this message, uh, you know, and, 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 and you need to give it to them, not me. They need to know that they need to come packing every day with the oil of Almighty God. Extra, 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 extra. The five who were foolish said, I got enough, I'm good, I'm good. And the bridegroom took longer than they expected. And they fell asleep. It was midnight. Now, generally falling asleep in the New Testament isn't a good thing. It's not, it's not referenced as being uh, an attribute, a, 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 a thing you want to do to be seen doing. The disciples fell asleep in the Garden of Gethsemane when Jesus asked them to stay awake. But I don't know that falling asleep here is bad. Primarily because the passage says that the the bridegroom came at midnight. I don't think Jesus expects you to stay up for seven days straight waiting on the alert. (laughs) Take a Sabbath. There's nothing wrong with resting. It's just reality. That he came at midnight, and so they were sleeping. They were doing what they were supposed to do. The the thing was this, that when they heard that the bridegroom was prepared, so were they. So if I am surprised by his coming, that, that doesn't mean I'm not prepared. It just means, oh, okay, he wants to do this now. I'm ready. They were asleep. And I don't know that any of us are going to be as cognizant as we should be, as conscious as we should be about when he comes. Nobody knows the time or the day. We're all going to be surprised. But the issue is not whether you're surprised. The issue is, are you prepared? Five were prepared. They got ready. Oh, they were so excited. And, and, and then the five foolish said, uh, uh, wait, 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 wait. Um, 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 I, I don't, I don't have enough, I don't, we don't have enough oil. Could you please give us some of, give, give us some of yours? And, and the five wise said, No. I can't because there will not then be enough for us. Now, here we have kind of a a superimposition of a scenario that Jesus is trying to convey that doesn't perfectly fit over all of the idea of what it means for us to, to be Christian. Meaning we normally think sharing is a good idea. We always need to give of that which we have. But there's some stuff Jesus wants us to understand we can't give. I can't give my calling. Can't do it. Just impossible. I can't give my responsibility to minister to people away. Can't do that. I can't give my delegated duties that God has given me to perform my service for him away. I can't give that. And all of those fit within the context of what it means to escort Christ into somebody's life. To escort, be the guidance, the illumination, guide the pathway so that Jesus can connect with somebody else. This is all about, from my perspective, evangelism. These people guided Jesus Christ into a relationship with somebody else with their illumination. Oh, this is what I do regularly. I'm opening up the scripture so that people can understand who Jesus is better and guiding him to them. I can't delegate that to anybody else. They got to get their own. You got to get your own. I can teach you how to do it. 
I can help you do it, but I can't give you mine. I've got to make sure I'm responsible with the oil and my guidance so that Jesus gets to where he wants to be in somebody's life. Can't give it to you. I'm sorry. You got to go buy it. Then they went out to buy it. And they came back and they were too late because the bridegroom had already been escorted into the place of relationship. The passage says, I don't know who you are. You can't come in. The door is locked. Again, it's not a perfect superimposition over how we think about the gospel, which is whosoever will come in. But Jesus is trying to convey this. That once somebody has fulfilled their obligation to minister this gospel, to guide Jesus, to accompany him into somebody else's life, into another relationship, the duties to do that are done. The door is closed. There's not an opportunity to do it again. That person has now received Christ. And the truth has been ministered, if you will. It doesn't mean that it can't be done again. It doesn't mean that these women weren't qualified to escort a bridegroom the next week to their intended so they could do it again. But this one was completed. The job was finished and they missed their opportunity. How many opportunities are you, we, me missing? Because we did not prepare and have enough oil to guide Jesus into a relationship with another. How many? I hope they are few. And from this message, I hope they are fewer still in the future. I beg you, come with more flasks. Fill up your, your bottles, your soul with oil. With the anointing of the Holy Spirit. The power of Almighty God. So that you can be what you need to be to other people. Meaning bringing Jesus into a relationship so that they can come <clears throat> and join with him. I think, that, I think I'm done now. Let's pray. Father in heaven, please help us to fill our lamps and to have extra because we don't know when you're coming we don't know when you're going to visit us <clears throat> in powerful ways and when you're going to need us to guide you into somebody's life I pray your blessing on everybody who hears this word that they would consider it a privilege to be able to guide you like that, to illumine your way. And secondly, that if somebody has not, has not acquired more flasks of oil, that you would put, a, put an unusual motivator in their soul to say, I'm going to do that. I'm going to do that. Is there anybody this morning who has yet to give their heart to Christ maybe you've made a decision in the past but your life doesn't look anything like what a believer's ought to be and you want to make a change if that, if that is you you fit in either one of those categories raise your hand high please 
if you're online there's a little box there at the bottom of the chat you can check and say I raised my hand raise your hand high all right bless you bless you you who raised your hand pray with me say father in heaven forgive me I am sorry for the way I've lived I choose to turn away from everything I know to be sin and to follow you with all of my heart thank you for forgiving me thank you for loving me and thank you for giving me the privilege of calling Jesus the Lord of my life in Jesus name Amen